When Karina Jordan accepted the chief executive role of Fish and Game in August 2022, many may have thought she was inheriting a poison chalice. The organisation, made up of 12 regional councils and one national body, had been mired in conflict in recent years, subject to a spate of audits, investigations and resignations. Established under the Conservation Act 1987, Fish and Game is one of Aotearoa New Zealand's biggest freshwater advocates and is responsible for managing fishing and game hunting licences. But in the 30 years since it's replaced the colonial acclimatisation societies, nothing much had changed. Until 2020, when accusations of bullying and internal conflict between the regional and national bodies, comprised of 144 elected members, yes, that's more than Parliament, prompted a ministerial review. And the ensuring report was not pretty. Fish and Game was perceived to be an old boys club, plagued with governance, efficiency and transparency problems, etc. Included in the report was the recommendation to amalgamate councils slash councillor numbers. It was apparent things needed to change, and the new chief executive will be tasked with trying to turn the organisation around. So how has she gone? Having grown up on a farm, we began with Karina's relationship with the outdoors. I'm really passionate about the outdoors and just the ability to be able to get out in the natural environment and enjoy it. I've obviously got a, a history in freshwater and so I'm very passionate about freshwater conservation and management and also passionate about the ability to be able to go out there um, as a New Zealander or, or anyone really and harvest sustainable wild kai from our environment to feed to feed the family. So those are those are the values that drive me uh, and I suppose that's what we brought back to brought me back to Fish and Game because they are shared values. Remind us of Fish and Game's statutory status and its role. It has a, a, an important job. It's got a number of uh, mandates under Parliament legislation. Its, its main co- act is the Conservation Act, but it's also got powers under the Wildlife Act and, and various other acts. It was set up by Parliament to manage sports fish and game bird populations in the interest of hunters and anglers and to advocate for hunters and anglers. But what we also know is Fish, fish and Game is one of New Zealand's primary freshwater advocates as well. So, for example, has popped in place 12 of the 16 water conservation orders that are essentially like our national parks for freshwater. Taking on the role, however, uh, at the time when you did, the picture was not rosy. We'd had this report come out highlighting internal conflict, poor governance, uh, the, the, the sort of the sheer number of people sitting on the various regional um, divisions, the fact they tended to be, it was implied, a bit of a fiefdom, and an old boys club. I think 2% of women at that time had roles, Karina. That's right. It was a really challenged organisation when I stepped into the role about 18 months ago. It was operating under a really low trust environment. So there was tensions across the councils, um, between the councillors and, and staff, and also between regions. So we've been doing a whole lot of work in that space to rebuild a really positive team culture across the organisation and start to really look at some of those tensions in relation to governance and operation that had been apparent through the ministerial review and obviously has played out in the media um, more recently as well. Yeah, it's still happening, isn't it? It's still uh, we are still getting reports within local fishing games of one person against another person or one block against another block. Uh, and how far through do you feel like you are 18 months in? And how far through what? 
That's right. It's such a good question. It has been a really challenging time. Um, unfortunate, uh, we've had some negative press over, over the last week or so with one of our regions, Central South Island, that's been some has some challenges with its, its governance function, which has been ongoing for a while. It's put a little bit of a damper on what is essentially an amazing organisation with a huge, um, passionate staff that is doing fantastic work out there. We have made huge progress over the last 18 months. A um, couple of things we've done is we've popped in place an organisational strategy We've been working to put in place a really strong values framework across the organisation, so that's trust, inclusion, connection and service. And we've been looking at our policies, including our governance policies and codes of conduct, and working to update that and then integrate that across the organisation as well. We've also popped in place governance training and are continuing to provide hand-in-glove support for those regions that are just a little bit more challenged in implementing the initiatives that we've essentially been working on over the last 18 months. That said, a, a recommendation of that review was basically to slash the number of decision makers across the board. I think there are more of them than we have MPs, so uh, uh, a smaller number of uh, representatives in the regions and perhaps a bit of al- amalgamation of the regions. Is there any intention to follow the recommendations of that review uh, yes, so definitely. Um, you know, the the review did a deep dive really into the into the governance structure of Fish and Game, and it came up with a whole lot of recommendations, which just essentially uh, make good sense. They're about really modernising the organisation, and so the organisation is is quite committed to a number of those changes. Uh, for me in particular, I got empowered by the chairs across the organisation and by my own council, which is the New Zealand Council, to implement what we call those non legislative changes. So the stuff that we can do now, which I just talked about before, that don't require changes to lure. Some of those other things that we've been talking about, such as consolidation of functions across the organisation and and even consolidation of some of the regions and, and reduction in the number of councillors, they do require legislative changes. And so we'll be looking to the Minister of Hunting and Fishing, who's our new minister. We're very excited about that um, to see what his aspirations are for this organisation. And we really want to work with him to ensure that um, we've got a modern organisation that's fit for purpose, that's really meeting the needs of New Zealanders and our hunters and anglers. So 144 elected councillors across 12 regions, of whom only 2% were women, um, do you believe the review recommended slashing the number by 100 councillors, right? So that's a lot of people who are going to lose their bit of power. Do you believe there is sufficient support across the country for that scale of change to happen? Were the minister to agree? Is it the way to go? I think so. I think across the organisation, you know, there's general understanding that that there's some legislative changes that are, are required for the organisation to be really fit for purpose and, and really meet its its needs coming forward and just probably really increase its efficiency. Uh, I know a lot of the regions have already significantly reduced their councillors. I think we might be down to just over 100 now. So they've voluntarily come from around about 12 down to about legislatively the minimum we can have, which is around about eight, with some regions holding a, a little bit more. Um, so there has been some voluntary moves in, in what they could do. And I think the government, uh, the, sorry, the organisation is really looking to this government for its direction and its support in, in modernising the legislation that that shapes the fishing game and how we operate. You'd worked there previously. You went off to work at Beef and Lamb NZ uh, after that stint. You'd worked there previously. So did you come into this eyes wide open? Were they quite long-standing issues? 
I was, I came in understanding the ministerial review. I obviously had a really good understanding of the organisation I'd worked um, on the ground as a field officer, working with the teams, which um, I think has actually stood me in good stead in the position now in relation to building trust across the organisation. I'd also led their RMA team, so I had a strong background in that. I probably didn't realise some of the challenges we had with personalities and, and some of the counsellors. Um, it's just a behaviour challenge. We've got very, very passionate counsellors that have come on board. They're elected from our licence holders and our volunteers and, and just hadn't probably had that support in the past to really shape how they behave and really empower them to be super effective in, in the governance role. So some of that has been a learning curve for me, but exciting and as part of this job, obviously developing myself professionally as well as uh, personally. I think you described it as like coming home, but it's a broken home. Um, and, and I'm curious about how you've gone about trying to build those relationships uh, with some, I imagine, fairly determined characters. I mean, have you literally gone on the road? Have you found some key points, people, that you, that you know have got your back and that you can trust? How have you done it? That's right. I think I was a little bit, um, I had my a foot firmly ahead of the line because I had that relationship with staff across the organisation. So I understood the organisation really well and already had a strong trust with the people on the ground. Uh, so that was a that was a, a a strong and early win for me. And what I did is I just I realized that this is just about people, right? Very very passionate people out there trying to do the best that they can, but maybe a little bit limited in in how we were connecting everyone together and and maybe um, not having, sharing a, a common vision. So I suppose the leadership thing you do is you create a unifying strategy. So that's one of the first things we did. And we built it from the ground up. So we went and talked to the teams. We talked about what they were passionate about. We talked about their values. And we talked to the councils. And we integrated that into a unifying organisational strategy. Um, so I spent a lot of time working with the staff. And I also then spent a lot of time just face-to-face -face connecting with those councillors so, so I could understand who they were, where they were coming from what their passions were, what drove them, and ultimately try to understand what was happening within the organisation that was breaking that trust down and causing some of these tensions between councillors and also obviously between governance and operation. And what do you think that is? I think it's, it's, a, it's historic, really. It's come from the history behind this organisation. Originally, it was you know um, the acclimatisation societies, and they were very much focused about introducing species. Um, we realised that it probably wasn't the best thing, and, and when the Conservation Act came into effect, essentially fish and game um, was developed, and it, and it integrated 30 acclimatisation societies into 12 regional fish and game councils and then the 13th council. Some of the challenges have really come from that history, um, probably exasperated by the federal nature of the organisation. And then obviously, you know, our regions are regionally autonomous. That means that they're their own legal entity. They have their own councils. They have their own managers. And to date, they've, they've really paved their own way. And I think that's led to the current situation we've got. So one of the big things we need to do is just get everyone working together, everyone talking together, sharing resources, common vision, and also empower people to understand what governance is, understand how to lead, and understand how to work together. And where does that really come into effect? Because, of course, they were also taking their own money from licence holders and making their own spending decisions. But if it's going to have a, a better national strategy, a bit more cooperation across boundaries, a bit more of a shared vision for things, what sorts of things are we talking about? 
But that's really going to probably be up to the Minister of Hunting and Fishing. We've had a catch up with him early on in the new year and it was really positive. So we're super keen to understand what his aspirations are and, and then to work with him to ensure that we're implementing those and obviously with his support through those legislative changes. Um, from my perspective, you know, I think it really looks like a more unified way of working, more connection uh, to a vision that we all buy into and we're delivering. Uh, more connection to our license holders on the ground in the regions, really spending time with those license holders, understanding their needs and giving effect to them. So that for me, that looks like, you know, encouraging more females to get into hunting and fishing, helping people with those steps um, so they can really enjoy this. A lot of work to still protect the environment and put habitats back in place like our, our wetland work. I think it probably looks like um, the way we think about our resources and, and pulling them together, those type of changes. We might be seeing some consolidation of functions and, and potentially some consolidation of regions, but like I said, ultimately up to the minister and, and probably up to our councils as well. Todd McClay, of course, is the new minister uh, who ta- who's taken on the role. Our guest is Karina Jordan. She is uh, the new boss of Fish and Game New Zealand. A fairly new boss. She'd been in the job for 18 months, which, as you know, had been through a fairly traumatic time and a scathing ministerial review some three or four years ago. I think she was permanently appointed as the first permanent head uh, since 2020. You're listening to Nine to Noon with Catherine Ryan on RNZ National. Let's dig in a little deeper to some of those issues then. You, you mentioned women. I think I saw, is it something like 14% of licence holders now are women? And is that an improvement even in the time you've been in the job? Improvement if, you, if you presume that 50% of the population <laughs> probably um, uh, might have some interest in, in, in this kind of recreational activity. So obviously this is a personal passion project for me. Um, so we've got around about probably 15,000 females that hunt in angle um, or undertake freshwater fishing. We have seen a really steady increase in the number of women that are engaging in hunting and fishing, and, and that's really positive, and more so than any of our other demographics, for example. So I think there's a real opportunity out there. And I personally enjoy really working with females to get them into hunting and fishing. We've got some amazing ambassadors out there. You would have seen Dame Linda Top join us for our Rewild campaign to really promote hunting and fishing and also um, really promote females' empowerment and getting into hunting and fishing. And we've got other leaders like Women on the Fly out there really helping females um, engage in, in fishing and showing them how to how to get into it and where to go. So super, super passionate space, um, really positive as well, and, and great feedback from the females that are starting to get into hunting and fishing. Another challenge uh, has been, according to the report, and I think you would concur, relationships with Iwi, uh, and obviously there is a shared interest, a shared passion in freshwater and in the great outdoors. Um, and so many tangata where we know, uh, it, it, it seems crazy that the, the kind of formal participation in your organisation appears to be so low, uh, given, the, given the extent of passion for hunting and fishing um, within tangata whenua. So, So what's going on? in the relationships there and what's your vision for it? The relationships vary across the across the country. So I've been doing a whole lot of work connecting with mana whenua locally um, to to build our connection, our understanding and our and our ability to sort of work together. Obviously 
um, we do have a whole lot of shared values um, going out and harvesting wild kai from a natural environment that's healthy and, and feeding your whanau is something that we very much have in line so there's a whole lot of values that are really aligned historically there's been some challenges and that's what we're working on with some mana whenua where fish and game was seen as uh, colonialization introducing a species which potentially displaced um, native species and caused tensions in relation to the ability to be able to pres- uh, undertake you know cultural practices the organization fish and game that is has moved on significantly obviously from those days and its pure function is to manage sustainably a population we do a lot with indigenous indigenous fish populations as well in particular and birds and a lot with habitat so we're sharing that passion and we're, and we're working together so the issue uh, and, is the history of course and the who are you to tell us that we need a license to uh, to you know to gather kai um, that I can completely understand that historical context. Is there also, or has there also been, though, a butting up in practice over um, which species, for example, might be fished or, or, or hunted? And is that a tension that is inherent and is going to be pretty difficult to resolve? I think that depends on on where you are. So it does depend on on mana whenua. And a lot of the communities I've been engaging with, uh, we're just building a really supportive, collaborative working environment, and we're we and we're share, sharing those values. So, so for example, fishing game might do work that provides access. Um, obviously, we do it to provide access for all of New Zealanders, but it also ensures that uh, mana whenua <laughs> regain that access to. Uh, to rivers and, and their land as so well. So some private land access, you mean, the ability to cross yeah. private land. Yeah. yeah, so there's a lot of sort of initiatives on the ground like that where we're working together, and, and those are really, really positive spaces. Uh, Fish and Games also um, providing cultural harvest opportunities in the South Island in particular. Down there we have Natahu, which sit on our governance forum, so very much are at the table. Obviously, fishing games got um, te tiriti o waitangi obligations, and so those are the ones we're trying to implement. Um, and we're looking at bringing uh, te Māori governance advice onto the New Zealand Council as well, and that's a work that's in progress. I mean, there should be a lot of things where you are in sync. The history, problematic history, given uh, put to one side, uh, fresh water. And the concerns so many anglers have with the quality of, of what has happened to uh, freshwater rivers and, and lakes would be one. And the desire to restore wetlands, I would have thought, would be another. What, what's the particular issues that Fish and Game have with wetland restoration um, that, you've made, that you made part of your election kind of manifesto, if you like, for the politicians? That's right. We were looking to, make sh- to talk to the government, and I think they've made this commitment now, so we will... Uh, be working with them on this to enable a wetland restoration and, and rehabilitation to be undertaken in an easier way. There's a lot of regulatory bureaucracy that's sort of been created over the last little wee while, um, and some of it has a purpose, but some of it can probably be simplified down. And one of the areas we think we could um, make a little bit easier is for people to get in there and actually put wetlands back into the environment. So we know we've only got about 9% left. Uh, significantly less in some regions. Wellington springs to mind with only about, I think, 3.5%. Um, so a huge opportunity to actually put wetlands back into the environment. And this benefits everyone. Um, and it's a great initiative for catchment communities as well. What, what, uh, so, what's the barrier uh, to it that you want to address, Karina? There were rules that were making it hard to restore, rehabilitate and put wetlands back in place. The rules were put in place to stop ongoing wetland degradation but they had the unintended effect of actually stopping wetland restoration. And so we're wanting the government to make it easy for people to put wetlands back in place so they don't have to get consents 
um, pay a whole lot of money and get a whole lot of consultants in to, to advise on essentially um, what can be done with some expertise, a digger uh, and a little bit of time. Last year you introduced a new angler licence. This is the designated waters licence. What was that addressing, please? And can fishers expect to see more of it? We're trying to actually work to uh, reduce our regulations and make them easier for everybody. Um, so we have had feedback um, that, that anglers and hunters would, li- would like to see that and a bit more unification across our regions. Designated Waters was really about um, protecting our what we call our pressure-sensitive pressure fisheries. So we have, New Zealand has iconic, these are internationally renowned trout fisheries. Um, they draw in not only domestic um, tourism, but also international tourism. And some of these sites, like the Upper Areti come to mind, um, have a whole lot of pressure on them, and that, and that impacts on the health of the fish. So this really was about managing that pressure so that people can enjoy these backcountry wilderness experiences um, and our populations of trout can be sustainably managed. What about other relationships? Obviously there was a butting of heads too with the dairy industry, and that references back to concerns uh, over the last decade or two, actually. Uh, about the impact of dairy intensification on fresh water. Where, where, are, where do things rub up there and where are things at in those relationships? Well, I had, I've got a really strong relationship with the primary industries, I think, born from about nine years with, with beef and lamb. So, And I'm personally really quite passionate about, about agriculture. Um, and I know a whole lot of the really great stuff that they're doing, especially the red meat sector um, and catchment communities. So we're looking to support a whole lot of, of that type of initiatives. At the same time, we're not resolving from conversations where we've got impacts of agriculture on the environment and Canterbury Springs to mind. Working with the primary industries in those areas to try and address those issues and look for solutions that benefit everybody. So look for those solutions that provide for a healthy environment, that provide for resilient communities, and that provide also for an economic well-being. And I know this is something the government's super interested in. So we're looking at those partnership opportunities with the government and the primary industries for look for looking at solutions that that meet all of our values and our needs. Where did it all start for you, Karina? You're in the business now of hunting and fishing. You've had time, as we said, with the primary sector with beef and, and lamb. But you started off as a vet tech. And I, I, was it an outdoors life right from the get-go? For me, it was. I think I, I grew up and um, and uh, mum stopped, said she stopped parenting me at about the age of three when she realised I was just going to go do my own stuff. And so she just provided some boundaries. And, See you and at tea sort of time. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So I was pretty much off riding my horse, hanging out with my dog, um, out in the environment, uh, learning skills um, from a really, really young age. And, and that's just stayed with me. Um, obviously, it was what attracted me to the primary industries as well. Uh, I started off, um, you know, as a veterinary tech and, and I ended up managing vet clinics. So that was sort of probably where I learned leadership, a bit of those leadership skills and a bit about business and, and things like that. And then I quickly realised that I, uh, while I could save an animal or, or you know, a, a, an entity, which was which was uh, really rewarding, um, I really wanted to do a little bit more and think about things a bit more holistically. And that moved me into environmental management. And ultimately, I was lucky enough to land a job with Fish and Game, which taught me a whole lot of stuff about sustainability and environmental management. And set a great platform for me to move to the primary industries. There were the horses, of course, but I think there was also, um, there was dance from a very young age, classical ballet and jazz. You became a Taranaki cheerleader and danced competitively. I'm just wondering now, what what kind of fishing are you? Are you a fly fisher woman? What, what's your fishing specialty? Probably badly. Um, I do a bit of fly fishing um, and I'm learning those skills and I do a little bit of spinning. Um, 
I really enjoy putting my head under the water, actually snorkeling down the rivers and having a look at the fish in their natural environment. Um, but I do a little bit of fishing, which seems great for my mental health and well-being, just to relax at the end of the day and mm-hmm. and obviously, you know, some amazing fish for the for the table. So I really just, I did it all around. I was really just interested in, in outdoors. Um, yeah, like you said, I spent a whole lot of time horse riding as well. And, and that was great. Taught me taught me discipline and, and taught me to be pretty tough. Um, dancing also taught me discipline and, and recall um, and probably help with things like this, interviews and standing up and talking in front of <laughs> Speaking people. Speaking of, I was wondering if it might help with balance during the the, the cast. Um, you had a bad accident yeah. um, in, involving horses, um, we should say. And I, sorry, I always bring up these things from people's stories and feel like I shouldn't. But, um, you know, there's, 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 there's been a lot of ups and downs along the the way yeah in fact I think that was pretty touch and go that accident um Karina I've had I've had a couple um so I believe in just jumping in there and getting stuck in and obviously that just comes with a few tumbles so I had a good accident when I was about 15 um and and then I had another one you know about a decade ago um which broke my back and impacted on my hips and things like that but it just teaches you to be resilient um and I'm all about and I don't really hold that stuff with me too much and, and I'm back on the horse pretty much as soon as I can walk so really goodness goodness so how long for this job I don't want you to put a, a year on it um but if you do it well is the intention to get it done and, and move on to other things like you know what's what's ahead now that you're getting to the you've started but there's still a ways to go with getting this organization where you believe and where it seems a good number of people believe it needs to get to be I'm really passionate about this organisation and in particular I think what I'm passionate about is is what it stands for, what it can do and it's people. It's got amazing people, you know, just um, shared values, really passionate, really professional and and super skilled. I really would like to see this organisation future-proofed and modernised and being able to undertake the amazing work that it does for generations to come. So that's my focus right now. And, and and we'll see, you know, where the next couple of years take us. And I suppose I'll be looking at my my next steps um, after I, you know, after we get this organisation fit for purpose, where everything's sort of calm and, and everyone can just focus on their business. Karina Jordan there, who is the fairly new head of Fish and Game, its first female chief executive.